Hey, everybody, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor. This is Mark. How you doing, Mark? Uh, I feel like an animatronic mechanic at a theme restaurant. How you feeling? That's very complex. <laughs> let that let that settle in. I feel like a perfectly coiled computer cord because uh, I'm surrounded by them. Recently reorganized. I have a standing desk now because I'm very trendy. Yeah, me too. And uh, it's like, you know, I'm like perfectly figuring out where every cord should be and like how everything is like all tightly bound up. So it's nice and organized. Yep. You got zip ties and stuff. Zip ties, cable management. Yeah. I'm good. Velcro. That's the way to go. <laughs> Velcro. Yeah. Non-permanent. Although mm-hmm. I have a few permanent and I just like snip them off every time. Yeah. I'm, Very I'm, wasteful. I have to do that. Plus like baby proofing. Oh, yeah. So like I, uh, yeah. Well, actually, set up my of, whole desk for that. Part of my whole desk setup is also not that it's comparable, but it's a little bit like cat proofing because the cat yeah, there you go. by and just like eats cords and shit. Yeah, it's comparable. But, uh, they have the same like <laughs> they have the same impulses of like yeah, dangling so, shit. Yeah, anything. Stuff. But it's weird how it, it that I mean it, this has probably been studied in psychology or something like what is the like psychological difference between like a dangling cord and one that's like bound up? It's like as long as it's tied up and like tucked away, it's like oh I'm not going to chew on that. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why you could? Yeah, they're. I know they're blind to it. <laughs> really weird. Must be an evolution thing. Yeah um so last week you invented the concept of introducing it wasn't last week it was last episode last episode yeah (laughs) last episode we'll pretend it's every week uh so you came up with the concept of introducing so and then you threw it over to me so this is basically from my understanding, it's almost like we're doing two shitty book reports, except one is shorter. <laughs> but you didn't have to read a book, though. You didn't have right. to read it. I've yeah, never yeah. read anything by Walter Tevis. I just heard about him. Okay, well, that's good, because I've never read a complete book by the uh, person I'm about to mention. But uh, definitely an interesting story, and he does have published writings. Okay, cool. Um, so let me ask you just in general, I'll do a, I'll, I'll do a mark start just give you a generalized question. Have you ever like read or like gotten into someone that is sort of like guru ish, like people who are like, you know, like either meditation or like spiritual gurus. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, so I forget what I read something like the, uh, uh, I forget. It's like Don, Don Juan or something like that. Carlos Castaneda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something like that I've read before. And Yeah, you talked about that here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, I think that might be it, though. Guru-ish. Like, what do you mean? Like uh, uh, Dr. Oz or something? Well, kind of. Well, no, not Dr. Oz. <laughs> I, I'm talking about Dr. Phil, a legitimate doctor, not okay. Dr. Oz. No, never mind. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, basically what I'm talking about, I it, in a way, they're like, I don't know. It's it shouldn't be, but it is like related in my mind. Okay, okay. First of all, I, I will say that I am uh, I like took like the class when I lived in London. I like took the class of um, transcendental meditation. Okay. Like I, I know how to meditate. Like I took the class. Yeah, David Lynch style. 
David Lynch style. Yeah, Eric Andre as well. Yeah, huge, huge uh, meditation fan. Jerry Seinfeld also. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's like just a lot of creatives and stuff like that who do uh, transcendental meditation. And honestly, I can I can 100% say that when I was doing it in London, I did it with like the idea that I like when you move to a new country, you you have like entire months of no plans, even pre-COVID. <laughs> Yeah, it was like you moved. I like moved to a new place, and it was like hmm, four weekends in a row where I'm not doing anything. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> well, other than obviously, whenever you step out your door, it's an adventure. But anyway, I'm getting off track. Who I'm, who I'm introducing actually has absolutely nothing to do with transcendental meditation, by the way. Um, but I'm just kind of giving you my like taste of of how I would like get down this path. So a friend of mine introduced me, I think probably maybe slightly before I was like interested in transcendental meditation. I think I knew about this person when I was living in New York. Um, but kind of falling also into that sort of like semi, you know, like not quite religious, but just like about like individualism and sort of like helping yourself by centering yourself and stuff like that. Um, Today I'm introducing you to the writings and a little bit of like the biography of one J. Krishnamurti. Have you ever heard that name? No. Okay. So I have a book in front of me um, called Total Freedom, and it's by and it's the collected writings and like published speeches of this dude, J. Krishnamurti. And actually the like story, like aside from his writings. I can kind of like take some of the even the guy who like invented transcendental meditation, some of the writings and speeches and stuff. It's like I can't ever really fully like get into these like types of writings in terms of like a page turner or like a cover to cover type of thing. It's more sort of like a book that you can like pick up, pick up and be like, oh, if I want to like kind of have those like spacey, like pseudo philosophical thoughts, then I'll like read this because sure. it's not very, it's not like, you know, Oh, I'm like sitting down and I'm going to figure something out about like life and existence. It's more like generalized <laughs> and I'm going to get into, I'll read some of the stuff from this book that's in front of me called total freedom. But I want to talk a little bit about the biography of Krishnamurti because it's actually like kind of fascinating. So Krishnamurti, as you may have guessed, was born in India and the like kind of main like life changing event in his life is, do you know what, have you heard of theosophy? It's like a religion that was like established in the U.S. in the 1800s. Mm, not exactly. No, <laughs> it's like, it's like, again, it's like, figure a it out from the su like, prefix like suffix. Yeah, it's like a pseudo-religion. Yeah. It's called, like, Theosophy, and it's, like, established from some, like, Russian ladies' writings. It's basically just, like, another, like, oh, we're not Christians, we're not Catholics, we're not Protestants, we're Theosophists, but it became, like, kind of popular with, like, a bunch of people, like, joining onto it. And so the deal with Krishnamurti, how it's, like, related to him, and this is where it kind of, like, becomes, like, sort of fascinating is Krishnamurti is basically just like this kid who lives like near one of the like theosophy, like outreach mission type things in India. And he's just like chilling as like a 10 year old kid, you know, like 
who, you know, you're not really doing <laughs> much of anything. <laughs> and one day this dude, uh, Charles Webster Ledbetter, who was like high up in the theosophic like religion, like a guy who's like basically just like sitting there white privilege style and being like, this is what I think about life, you know, and like other stuff like that. He was this guy, Ledbetter guy was originally like a Catholic, like some sort of like Church of England priest or something. Then he turned to this like pseudo religion. And one day when he like sees Krishnamurti like on the beach or something like in India near the like place, like the Theosophy place where he lives, he's like, I'm randomly deciding that this kid is going to be the vessel for the new like living God. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and Krishnamurti's like, that seems all right, because I'm like, you know, like an impoverished, you know, kid in India. And then it like basically like explodes him and his brother. It like explodes their lives into being like westernized. And they're, and, he, and this guy, Ledbetter, is like, hey, I discovered the new living God. And then there's like an entire religion of people who are like, totally. <laughs> um and just a side note here, there's a really good movie. If you ever want to watch like an old, uh, you know, an old Indian film, there's an amazing filmmaker named Satyat Bray. He's like, he's like the huge, he's like the Akira Kurosawa of India. He's like a really big deal. Like one, basically the biggest Indian filmmaker uh, ever. And he made a movie, this is a side note, but he made a movie in the in 1960 called The Goddess, which is like a similar theme. Basically one day this guy, uh, who this like an old man who lives with his son and daughter-in-law he like wakes up one day and he's like i had a dream last night that my daughter-in-law is a goddess so that's the thing now and it's true <laughs> and, and and it's like really good movie about like how this woman is like kind of put into this awkward situation where thousands of people start worshiping her and she's like i hate my life <laughs> um but anyway, Krishnamurti didn't hate it. He was like, like basically people asked him later on in life, like, what do you think of like the kind of like bullshit, like discovery that happened to you? And he was like, well, if that didn't happen to me, I probably would have died like at a younger age. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whatever. Um, so now the second part of like what, and it actually leads into, I'm, I'm going to read like about a page of total freedom. And like I said, just checking out, like, check out Christian Murney in general. He's a pretty interesting dude. I'm going to tell you about one thing that I think convinced me that he was, like, really interesting and not just someone like, oh, some pseudo philosopher that you can, like, glaze over. And that is that eventually, like, these, you know, theosophists, these, like, basically white people who, like, kind of, like, adopted him and his brother, I think actually maybe even literally adopted him and his brother, like, signed the papers so that they could have them travel around the world and stuff at that time. By the way, this is all, like, turn of the 20th century, like, 1910, okay. kind of 1910 into 1920s and stuff. Um, eventually, they, like, do a sub part of the religion, and they call it Order of the Star in the East, and they're like, okay, this is Krishnamurti. He is like the living embodiment of like a new God. He is great. And he goes on like all these public speaking tours and stuff like that. And um, this is uh, what happens is what I'm about to read from Total Freedom. And it's like one of the first like pages. It's called Truth is a Pathless Land. Okay, so... The Order of the Star in the East was founded in 1911 to proclaim the coming of the world teacher, quote-unquote world teacher. Krishnamurti was made the head of the order. And on August 2nd, 1929, so like, you know, a few 18 years later, 
the opening day of the annual star camp in Omen, Holland, Krishnamurti dissolved the order <laughs> before 3000 members. This is the this is the text of what he gave, what he said on that occasion. So he's sitting in front of 3000 people who all think he's a living god and he's like by the way, no. <laughs> um so here's like a this isn't the full speech that I'm about to read but I'll read a few paragraphs and I think it's like kind of cool. And and I think you'll get the sense of like why this is a cool book to just like pick up and read. Okay. All right, we're going to discuss this morning the disillusion of the Order of the Star. Many people will be delighted, and others will be rather sad. It is a question neither for rejoicing nor for sadness, because it is inevitable, as I am going to explain. You, re you may remember the story of how the devil and a friend of his were walking down the street when they saw ahead of them a man stoop down and pick up something from the ground. Look at it and put it away in his pocket. The friend said to the devil, what did that man pick up? He picked up a piece of the truth, said the devil. That must be a very bad business for you then, said his friend. Oh, not at all, the devil replied, because I'm going to let him organize it. I maintain, that, I maintain that truth is a pathless land, and you cannot approach it by any path whatsoever, by any religion, or by any sect. That is my point of view, and I adhere to that absolutely and unconditionally. Truth, being limit, limitless, unconditioned, unapproachable by any path whatsoever, cannot be organized, nor should any organization be formed to lead or to coerce people along any particular path. If you first understand that, then you will see how impossible it is to organize a belief. A belief is purely an individual matter, and you cannot and must not organize it. If you do, it becomes dead, crystallized. It becomes a creed, a sect, a religion to be imposed on others. That is what everyone throughout the world is attempting to do. Truth is narrowed down and made a plaything for those who are weak, for those who are only momentarily discontented. Truth cannot be drawn down, rather the individual must make the effort to ascend to it. You cannot bring the mountaintop to the valley. If you would attain to the mountaintop, you must pass through the valley, climb the steeps, unafraid of the dangerous precipices. You must climb towards the truth. It cannot be stepped down or organized for you. Interest in ideas is mainly sustained by organizations, but organizations only awaken interest from without. Interest, which is not born out of truth, of love of truth for its own sake, but aroused by an organization, is of no value. The organization becomes a framework into which its members can conveniently fit. They no longer strive after truth or the mountaintop, but rather carve for themselves a convenient niche in which they put themselves or let the organization place them and consider the organization will therefore thereby lead them to truth. So, <laughs> so it seems like, like he's tr he's trolling his followers right there. Kind of, kind of. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's like this kind of he has like this like weird biography where it's like, hey, little boy, you're a to totally a god, and he's like, cool, I'm gonna get this like westernized education and like learn a few languages and you know whatever, and then eventually he's like, no, fuck that. <laughs> like everything is you know like that's his whole thing and that's why the book is called total freedom because it's like everyone you know obviously he established this like fame for himself by being you know like quote unquote discovered eventually he like goes out like he eventually like moves to california he actually lived in a cottage in ojai california that town where bart's books is that okay. I've been to. So now I almost want to go back to Ojai just to like do a little like Christian Murdy tour. I'm sure that there's like something over there. But eventually it was like, you know, he like met the Beatles and stuff like that. You know, he was like one of the like, you know, one of those guys. Yeah. Um, but he 
like did all these famous talks all throughout America, all throughout the world. But that's always his thing. And that's why the book is called Total Freedom. And the way that it's organized is actually like some of his essential writings, but also published like 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 transcripts of recordings and stuff where it's like Q&A sessions with like like generalized like question one, like someone asked this and then he answers. And a lot of it always like comes back to that where it's like, what do you think I should do? Like Krishnamurti. And he's like, you guys don't get it. Like, I don't tell you anything. Like, stop. You you know, like, <laughs> like no organization, no anything. Like, you have to, like, center yourself. And, like, that is the only answer. <laughs> like, and, and he's kind of, like, an interesting guy. So uh, that was what kind of drew me. That Like, those two things is what kind of drew me to him is that, one, that like really bizarre thing where like some random white dude was like, you're a god. I think that that's just like fascinating. And then two, the fact that like 20 years after the establishment of that, he's like, by the way, this is all really stupid. <laughs> he's rebelling. He's rebelling. So he's he was rebelling. kind of, yeah, he was kind of just groomed into that. He was totally groomed. He was that's totally like. Very strange. Yeah, it's like, it is really strange. It's like, basically, I'm just like, I mean, for better or for worse, that guy, Charles Ledbetter, who was probably like insane being like this Indian child is like the new God or whatever. But I mean, he wasn't wrong. He did become like this like spiritual, you know, like thing. But it's kind of funny to be like that, like your career and like your life is like predetermined by like someone found you. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and like decided that that's what you were going to do. And then, you know, even after the dissolution of the Order of the Star, which I just described, lots of stuff happens in his life where he goes on to like do like talks and lectures and like all these different things. Um, so, yeah, he's he's a pretty fascinating dude. That's cool. Did he have a like are all his books in a similar vein of like that sort of style or um, like any I bi- think, biography? I, I think total freedom is actually like a a kind of more like overview. Like this is the essential, like some writing, some published speeches and stuff like that. And then he had, then there's actual stuff that is just like, this was like written for like by him. Um, Like actually like, okay, I'm going to publish this book kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. When you first started talking about like turn of the century, you know, uh meditation type stuff i just my mind went right to my one of my favorites uh arnold bennett the human machine the one i like to talk about Mm -hmm. uh because that's like a weird another weird form of kind of it's (laughs) he didn't it's not meditation by name but he basically said just repeat these words in your head and tell your brain that you're in control like (laughs) yeah like self-help stuff does it does uh does uh do his writings go into any sort of like actionable advice kind of stuff or is it just more kind of but it is like it is idea it's like there is some practical advice but it's not as solid like you said like what you just described is basically transcendental meditation (laughs) yeah yeah you get like a thing you know uh and you and you like repeat it to yourself and kind of like dissolve your thoughts. Krishnamurti is not really like that. It's more like everything like what I just read of like him talking about like truth is like a pathless like object that does not have like a like an ultimate like thing is that's like with everything. So when people are like, what do I do about like loving my family? And he's like, love is like a 
loop you know like he just like starts like talking about like random you know everything is sort of like a you know connected and flowing you know very it's a little bit like hippy dippy but at the same time i see it like i said more as like a reference text like i haven't read it cover to cover i've more like opened it up to random pages and been like what's krishnamurti have to say and it it's kind of one of those things too like you know how those like guys like uh the like, motivational speakers are like always like there's it's so generalized that that's why you can always relate to it. Sure. It's Tony, like that. Tony Robbins. Yeah. Like anything, sort of any sort of like time in your life where you would be like, you know what? I think I would like, like to consult like a sort of generalized grounding guru type guy. I find that I like Krishnamurti because of those autobiographical details that I mentioned, you know, all, all the stuff of like, he like dissolved like this religious order that like followed him and stuff is like kind of (laughs) cool. So why not get into Krishnamurti? All right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's for that. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen any of his books. No, I, I mean, I may have just maybe they they wouldn't be in in the literature section. They would be in well, where, yeah. Where would they be in the uh, in the bookstore? Like the religious section, kind of. Uh, maybe, maybe like religion philosophy. He's like de- like his Wiki- okay. the Wikipedia is like he's a philosopher. I mean, there's like the quote from the back, like some of the quotes from the back of my edition of Total Freedom. There's one from Deepak Chopra. Aldous Aldous Huxley says, hearing Krishnamurti speak was among the most impressive things I've ever heard. It was like listening to a discourse from the Buddha, such power and such intrinsic authority. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. He dropped acid for that? Uh, I don't know, but there's like, I kind of, in my research of like wanting to talk about Total Freedom, I've actually read more of total freedom the book that's in front of me then even like his biography like maybe i should read a biography of krishnamurti because i was like just before we got on the podcast i was reading about like in ojai california where he was like living in a cottage he started having these like episodes of like they were like oh that's his process like he's commuting with like nature and it's like to me it sounds like he might have been like a little bit of like a manic depressive mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like you know that's like a repeated thing throughout history of like oh yeah. this like religious leader like he would have ups and downs and it's like it sounds like you know today he would be prescribed Prozac yeah undiagnosed <laughs> yeah um so yeah Krishna Murdy all right sounds good yeah, he's cool. He's a cool, dude. Um, so am I, I'm, I'm also going first. I think. Yeah, back to non, back. Go for non-stop it. Non-stop talking. <laughs> Get a drink. Get a drink. Actually, I have some water in front of me. Give me one second. Mm. Okay, so the book that I am going to talk about this week, I think I've talked about it on the podcast, but I've never reported on it. And if I have reported on it, I've forgotten it, which might be a problem (laughs) let's see if i remember it okay um i'm just going to dive right into the title and the author uh nathaniel philbrick wrote a book called in the heart of the sea the tragedy of the whale ship whale ship essex i do not recall this so i think you're good okay good so this book is sick (laughs) sounds like nonfiction. 
It is nonfiction, okay. which is like, what? Like, how is that possible? Um, the re- the way that I got this book was actually like a friend in high school ha- had visited Nantucket and there, and Nathaniel Philbrick, the author, was there um, doing signed copies. I wish it was me who had gotten the book and met Nathaniel Philbrick because <laughs> after reading this book, uh, I would I would very much like to to uh, meet him. This is a National Book Award winner and a New York Times bestseller, just like every other book in the bookstore. Sure. Um, but in the heart of the sea, the tragedy of the whale ship Essex. It was also made into a box office bomb movie by Ron Howard. No. <laughs> um, but I haven't watched the movie yet. But I'm actually honestly interested because what do I care if it's a box office bomb? I mean, that might even be a good thing. But um, so what it is is. It's a nonfiction book. It's about 300 pages, maybe even only 250 minus like the notes and stuff like that. Um, and what it is, is the whale ship Essex was one of those classic whaling boats that left from Nantucket and was going like around the, the world to do like a whaling journey of several years, blah, blah, blah. Um, but what's interesting so the Essex, like, is this boat that went missing, right? It's, like, one of those classic, like, tragedy story, blah, 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 whatever. Like, the Essex, like, sank in the um, Pacific Ocean. Okay. But the thing about it was that it was – not that that's, like, some rarity. Like, there's lots of sh- whale ships that sank and, you know, whatever and got lost and whatever. But for some reason, the Essex, like, is one of the early examples of, like, catching the imagination of, like – public headlines kind of thing okay um because the essex is also the inspiration for like like moby dick for instance the true story of the essex is inspired by melville being like like learning about this ship okay when so when did this happen the essex yeah like when did it sink yeah. um 1820 okay you got the lusitania beat then i was trying to think of other sinking ships i mean obviously yeah. titanic uh right so yeah. yeah so like the essex kind of is like the tight like the titanic you know it's it's like one of it's like one of those where it's like wow it really like there was news articles and books and people were fascinated blah 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 um and what this book does which is really cool like one of the reasons why it's so engrossing is that uh what he does is obviously he's like a good writer, you know, oh, New York Times bestseller, blah, blah, blah. But he has like sort of very he tries to keep his voice like as small as possible in this book. And it's all connected through source material. So and he's very upfront about it, too, where he's basically like, hey, like in the introduction or whatever, he's like, these are the sources like this is what we're going to be talking about. And there's a few kind of sources. One is an account of like the first mate of the ship or whatever that was published like in his lifetime, like after the tragedy happened. So basically what happened and, and it's always fascinating because, you know, like I said, the Essex sank in 1820. But what's crazy about these whaling journeys is that you want to think like back then you know, circumnavigating the globe is like, that didn't happen. Or like, you don't, you don't have like a good grasp on like when that was um, or when they could do that. But I'm looking at a map in the front of the book right now. And, you know, these whaling journeys were insane. It was like, it was like you left from Nantucket and like 
uh, you know, just to kind of put it out there, because I know I know the answer and I know that, you know, I know that you don't know the answer. But how long do you think like the whaling journeys were planned to be? <laughs> Five years. Yeah, like that's the way it is. Like it was like we're going to be out on this boat for anywhere between like three to ten years. Yeah. <laughs> which is nuts. Like that is so insane. And, you know, I'm looking at the map in the front of the book and it's like this is the route of the Essex that they know because of like the ports that they went to and also just like navigation and everything. It's like it goes from Nantucket, like leaving from Massachusetts, which is so cool to us, too, because it's like we you know, Massachusetts, you're in Massachusetts right now. Yeah. Like, you, you know, like, it's just so cool, like, that it, like, originates from something that we're so familiar with. Yeah, there's a town, there's uh, every, I think every state in, in New England has a town called Essex. (laughs) Right. And the, the route of the, the whale ship and other whale ships like it, it's like they leave from Nantucket, they go to almost the west coast of Africa, like all the way across the Atlantic. Then they dip down all the way past the south end Cape Horn of South America. And then they travel up the western, like western side of South America. And then they start going out like into the Pacific Ocean and even like towards like Japan and stuff. And it's like, that's fucking insane. This is 18, <laughs> this is 1820. Like they were on a wooden boat. Were they doing other sorts of trading or something because we have whales we got whales like off the cape <laughs> they don't have, have to keep going i don't i don't know if they <laughs> did i think maybe they did stuff like take this from place to place but that was yeah. the thing like this was it kind of shows you that like you know human beings being crazy for oil is not a new thing no you know like this was the whaling industry i mean the whaling industry was oil like at that time yeah and they were like you know if if there's a possibility of selling these candles to every home in america or every home globally then you know nantucket is the ticket and that's why it was such a rich town back then Mm because it was like crazy oil you know this was the oil industry and people would just say okay i'm gonna go get on a boat for 10 years like love you (laughs) and that's another really cool thing about this book okay so let's talk about the two sources the one source is from one of the guys who was on the boat and it was published like so the whale this the ship sinks there's no secret about that throughout the book i'm not giving any spoilers or anything and then the it sinks in the pacific ocean apparently rammed by a sperm whale literally like taken down by moby dick like (laughs) get the fuck out of here yeah and then um And then the whale, like what happens is the crew, because there's like a main ship and then there's like the whaling boats, like the like boats that actually like, like if the main ship is like, you know, where we're living and and sailing the world, then like those boats that are like, you know, the guys are like rowing, those are called the whaling boats. So they are only left in those boats in the middle of the fucking Pacific Ocean to be like, I hope we can get home. And that and that's part of the story, too. So one of the survivors wrote an account of that. Then later, which is really fascinating, is that in the 60s, someone discovered a document of someone who later in life was like, I was, uh, you know, one of the like I was like a boy on the ship on the Essex. And they discovered that in the 60s. And it was only like 100 percent authenticated in the 80s, 1980s. So they were like, okay, like this is real. And then Nathaniel Philbrick was like, okay, so I'm going to add that to my book. By the way, this was published in 2000. Really? Yeah. Okay. So it's pretty recent. 
well, 2000 is no longer recent. It's 21 years no. ago. But, yep, quite uh, a while ago, actually. Yeah, yeah. I want to. <laughs> I, I want to die. Anyway, um, so so all these like sources coming together. He's amazing at putting all the sources together. And like I said, he doesn't. He also doesn't ignore that there's people back home on shore. Like there's a few chapters about like the whalers' wives and letters from them to their friends and how you know they would they would their husband or like significant others and stuff would get on these boats and they would be like hope you come back in ten years and of course everyone was cheating on everyone and you know s- sleeping around and all this other stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's like a really fascinating story. It captured the imagination of people at that time, but now that we have like a great writer like Phil Brick and like all these source materials and stuff, it really comes together. And another thing that really kind of shocked me when I was reading this book initially, I, re- I read it a few years ago, I, w- I would read it again. Um, what makes, what shocked me initially, and is like so fascinating, yeah, I was talking about how they have one big main boat and then the little whaling boats are like rowboats, right? Yeah. So I thought when I was reading this book that I was like, in the first like third of the book, I was like, I'm going to learn about whaling and how they do it. Like, how do they really like kind of take down a whale and like the harpoons? What is, yeah. yeah. What is like, what do they do and what's the trick? Like, what is the like kind of like thing that they do? And And I think he drove this point home at some point, but he also drove it home like factually. And the reality is that there isn't a trick. Like I thought that I was going to learn something and be like, yeah, they use this special hook or like they do this thing and like blah, blah, blah. There's no trick mark. Like they literally, (laughs) they pull the boat up to the side of a whale that is coming up to breathe and they start to stab the fuck out of it. Yeah. And that's it. Like there is no like, oh, this is what we do. And when they get the harpoons in and the whale lines are in and whatever, and the and the whale drags them down, they're like, okay, that guy died. That's fine. Keep going. Like it's psychotic. And 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 there and it's really there's really good like firsthand accounts of them like, you know, it's brutal and it's disgusting. And it's like, you know how scary that would be? Like you're in a rowboat pulling up, <laughs> pulling up to a whale with like a fork. Yeah. And you just like start stabbing it and it starts getting pissed off. And like, obviously the the whales can take those little boats. So your blood really gets pumping when you're reading this book. Cause it's like, Holy shit. There's no like mystical, magical, like device or science or whatever. It's like people are falling off the boat and dying. And then sometimes when they kill the whale, they drag the massive corpse onto the main ship. And then they like put the freaking oil in barrels and keep going. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I don't, I'm not, I don't envy that life. I don't envy that life either. It's absolutely yeah. psychotic. So psychotic. And, um, yeah, so that like basically in the heart of the sea, you'll learn a ton. It gives like a ton of like awesome context and it has characters too. Like, it's not just like, you know, some anonymous thing because of that source material. He kind of like weaves it all together and he's really good at like weaving it all together. And, and you can see how, people became fascinated back then, but now we just have so much more material that it's like, you're getting, you know, maybe like a little bit closer to the truth. Sure. So it's like kind of like a, like a nonfiction Moby Dick and it's really good. Nice. Can I take a guess here? Mm-hmm. Just a stab in the dark. Was this book given to you as a gift by your grandfather? Cause it seems like that kind of <laughs> book. It totally seems like that sort of 
book that you would read you're like yeah my 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 dad or my grandpa yeah. got me this book about a ship <laughs> like it's it is not it is not a gift for my for my grandfather oh man definitely could have been know, it could have been it could have been one of these things that this is like a book that's it gives my uh mark is operating on some special knowledge here that my grandpa's house is near the beach in connecticut so yeah you know this would be the perfect Connecticut summer book. Like you're in like a you're in a chair, like on the beach, reading about these whales. Like my God, like okay, star- staring out at the ocean. Like okay, flip just, flip it then, flip it. Would can you? Why haven't you given this book to your grandfather to read? Is he a reader? He's not a reader. Oh man, you could get him started with this one. Yeah, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, yeah, it's really good. Check out uh, In the Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Whale Ship Essex. I don't read nonfiction. Come on, it's got to be good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nonfiction's so good, it almost feels like fiction. Um, so, yeah, I'll get on to my one-star review. Alex from Goodreads, uh, he had some choice things to say. He said, just so everyone knows, I rooted for the whale every single <laughs> <laughs> oh come on uh it w- he says it would seem that every person w- who was aboard the essex or any other whaling ship would do just about anything to f- fulfill their greedy and selfish desires they had no respect for life except their own and because of that i stopped caring what happened to them hashtag save the whales hashtag save the tortoises yeah i mean and i agree actually- like modern modern whaling <laughs> sucks well, actually, it's funny that he does hashtag save the tortoises because that's probably <clears throat> among all the crazy brutal things that happen in this book. Um, there is like a funny part about like uh, Philbrick kind of clues you in. It's kind of interesting, actually, when you think about it in terms of no respect for animal life, not they even make, talking about they make turtle soup. Well, they do. They do make turtle soup. But what's interesting is I remember this part in the book because it's it's funny, but it's also cruel. But they were like, there's a part where he's talking about how they would on those like tropical routes, you know, going around like South America and stuff. They said that turtles were great because basically what they would do. And I know it's fucked up, but come on, guys, 1820, you're on a wooden boat for 10 years. What they would do is they were like, oh, good, like get the tortoise or whatever, because a tortoise will live a really long time if you don't feed it like anything. And then they were like, it's basically just like portable food. Like it's just like there's like tortoises like all over the boat. And then they're like, yeah, we're kind of like out of stuff right now. Let's eat one of the turtles. Oh, God. Because <laughs> they don't I mean, eat like, they, you know, you throw them like a few leaves, maybe even if they're super dehydrated, you, they're like cruel and they don't care. And then they're like, oh, yeah, you just grab one of the turtles. <laughs> oh god yeah nice scurvy uh, yep <laughs> that's the ocean life i guess i don't know ocean life no thanks no refrigerators on the whale ship essex yeah this is, this is not a pleasure cruise <laughs> i mean it does sound like some good nonfiction, though it's amazing I, it I is it really that. it really is amazing and like i said it was like my heart was pounding with just like the idea of like, okay, like, so they just pull up on this whale. Sometimes they even stand on the whale. Yeah. <laughs> which is absolutely insane. I, I'm scared of whales too. Like whenever I see videos of stuff moving under the water, I'm like, no, fuck that. I mean, it's, it's the, the biggest thing, right? It's the biggest thing. Right. Living thing. It's, it's, uh, it's insane. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I've been whale watching. It's pretty cool. 
<laughs> but not going to stray too far. So it's interesting that you kind of talked about some kind of like inspirational book uh, earlier with your introducing or whatever, because I got something along that same vein this week, but it's uh, it's more of a story than like a direct kind of thing. But I was going to start with just asking you a question. How, how conducive are you to being inspired? Like, is it easy for you to just get inspiration from random outside sources? Like, like here, does this, does this inspire you? It's very, very simple to get what you want, but it's not easy. It's your job to make yourself do the crap you don't want to do so you can be everything that you're supposed to be. Is that inspiring? <laughs> Are you ready to uh, jump r- jump through a wall? No. Do you watch, do you watch videos on YouTube like <laughs> of like, I don't know, they'll mix like all these historical figures saying like it, it wasn't it wasn't easy. But like, <laughs> you know. I can I can get on board with that, but I don't know what that particular clip was. It's just the first thing that popped up when I found uh, mm-hmm. inspirational video. What about this right here? What about this? Have to know what you want. You have to to do what you want to be what you want. I write things <laughs> that I feel, and then when the books are out, people identify themselves with my books. I don't imagine myself sitting in my apartment in Rio de Janeiro and say, "Oh." I want to be such a successful writer and people have to read my book. When you want something, the whole universe will conspire for you to have it. So that was my author speaking. You got any guesses there? Yeah. No. So a couple context clues there. He said he was a little bit like a Picasso or something. He said he was from Rio, Mm. if you caught that. But Maybe yeah, maybe that wasn't enough to inspire you. Well, well, I'll come back to this. But what does what do you do when you're looking for inspiration? Where do you get it from? Like if you if you need if you had like if I said you have three minutes to get like a little Pumps. pep in your step or whatever, yeah. What do you, what would you what are you gonna do? I got think, two sources. Think about I, something. I have two sources. Actually, one of them. Your your mate. At first, I was like, "What the hell is Mark talking about with these YouTube videos?" But one of them, <laughs> one of them is actually. I'm going to name three sources. One of them actually is a YouTube video. I have an inspirational YouTube video that is. Um, it's like a really obscure thing where it's like a shot of a guy in. He's either in Japan or Korea, and he's talking about how you can do anything because he's out in the freezing cold. Do like like a harvesting clams (laughs) and he's like he's like if i'm out here harvesting these clams you can do it (laughs) you can do anything like you're amazing um so that's one source a second source would be there's a famous painting by Ilya repin called the volga boatman and it's a if you will if you're if you're in front of google and type in the Volga volga boatman uh, you'll see uh, a painting of um, V-O-L-G-A, the Volga Boatman, just type images. And it's like these guys hauling a boat up onto shore. Uh, and it's this really intense painting of like, that's what these guys used to do. Okay, I see it. Yep. Um, so that's like a, an inspirational kind of like, yeah, life has always been shit kind of painting. It's like and- the opposite of the Iwo Jima, like flag raising 
painting. Because right. <laughs> they're, pull, they're pulling, not pushing. That's actually a good point. Yeah. And uh, then the final source, like you said, like to get pumped within like a few minutes would be the band Unearth, also from Massachusetts. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, if that's I'm one driving, of mine, that's one of mine too. Like if I'm song. driving, if I'm like driving to an interview or like something where I need to like have confidence or something, it's like let's blast on Earth. <laughs> I'll feel like invincible. Nice, uh, Zombie Autopilot is a song. If anyone's interested, yes, that's a classic. Uh, yeah, I, I have a similar method. You know, some people, if, if if I have enough time or something, maybe I'll listen to like a speech or something, or there's some commencement speeches that are kind of like that. Like the, actually the, the David Foster Wallace, uh, this is water. It's a famous yep, one a that people one. like. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, but anyways, you know, I read a very famous inspirational book this week and it's, it's one of the ones it's of the category, like of the ones that gets given to people at graduations and whatnot, like that sort of genre, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Give me, give me some of those first things that pop in your head. Chicken soup for the teenage soul. There you go. <laughs> um, oh, the places you'll go. Yeah. Uh, chicken soup is really the one that comes to mind for me. <laughs> okay. So I, I read 1988's The, the Alchemist by Brazilian author Paulo Coelho. Hmm. Okay. And so this book, it deals with destiny. You know, it's it's called out in the book as your, quote, like, personal legend, a.k.a. what you've always wanted to accomplish in your life. And like, uh, you know, everyone, everyone when they're young is supposed to maybe know or figure out what their personal legend is. And what Coelho kind of says is that if we recognize that and we can pursue it sincerely and just like in that quote, he says, everything in the universe will conspire to help us achieve it. Hmm. Like if you want, if you want something enough and you know, you're reaching out for it and you, you know, approach it genuinely and, you know, with, with your whole self, then maybe like the universe will bend a little bit to make it easier or to, you know, make it happen. Right. Has life, has life ever felt that way for real though? Do you have any moments mm. in your life when it's like, I just wanted it so hard and like I did work hard, but like also something random happened and I got the job or whatever, something like that. Maybe, maybe, I got, but I, I do. I'm, I'm a little bit of like a make your own luck kind of thing. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard. I don't really, I think it's always a combination of both. Sure. So yeah, I kind of feel that way, same way too. I'm more about like hard work than fortune and stuff, but. The, the story here is somewhat simple. Uh, you got Santiago, who's a shepherd, shepherd boy from Spain. Um, okay. He has a recurring dream one day that a fortune teller interprets for him as a prophecy about a treasure at the Great Pyramids of Egypt. Hmm. So, you know, he's he's got this treasure in his mind it's that's what he's like after and he's told he he meets up with a, a king shortly after kind of like out of nowhere pops up in his life and tells him to follow the signs in front of him and approach it you know with an open mind right and so that's like that's what coelho's kind of forms the story around around your personal legend and you know he is the main character and nothing matters but his his legend 
and you're and if he also points out other people like in the story other people are pointed out to santiago like hey that's like a baker or this guy's just like owns a shop or whatever they never followed their legends and basically what he's saying is you're doomed to an empty shell of a life if you don't pursue your goal you know right it's, if you're afraid to take that big step that you daydream about then you're screwed I can relate with that. I mean, I definitely, I think you said, actually, you complimented me on the podcast, I think the other day or other week or other month or something like that, where you were saying, you know, I sometimes tend to make like big moves like New York, London, California, like, and yeah, I can definitely, like, I've had the moment that he's talking about where you're like lying there in bed and you're like, nope, I'm going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to do it. <laughs> But but yeah, I mean, this is it's too famous of a book to legitimately spoil, so I don't really care. Okay. But let's say let's say this was like a Disney movie, like you know, you heard you heard the basic plot. Let's pretend it's a Disney movie. How would you think it would play out if he's after a treasure? Like, what happens normally when someone's after a treasure or something like that? Uh, what's what's the lesson? What's the lesson? Oh, that, you know, the treasure was you all along or like you didn't need to like get the treasure because it was about the journey. Exactly. Exactly. And that's like and that's, you know, that's not a bad lesson. It's a that's a good no. lesson. You shouldn't be 100 percent focused on, especially when it's like money or shit like that. You, ex, you know, you expect that to be the lesson or, or eventually wind up like that. Like the real treasure was a journey, not the destination, that sort of thing. Treasure was in your heart all along. Uh well, that almost happens in this book a few times as he advances through the story. Like he loses everything. He finds his niche. He like, you know, he helps this guy. He like sets up a life for him and then he leaves it to continue on his journey. He, he literally, he finds love like in a literal oasis, like a, you know, a perfect kind mm -hmm. of thing that he would have had this really fulfilling life that he was you know, told others cannot reach, but then, you know, he gets that and then he, but then he's still pushed from within, like, and without from other external sources to keep pursuing the treasure, like risking everything else, risking his love and everything like, um, right. And so that's kind of crazy. And, and the epilogue of the book, like, I, again, I don't care about spoiling it. It's, you know, Santiago finds the treasure. And, you know, it doesn't end up being anything but an actual stash of gold coins and stuff like that. And <laughs> yep. It kind of it kind of ruins the metaphor that it seemed to be building. And it's that's funny. It's, it's weird that the message seems to be to leave everyone behind in pursuit of money or wealth or whatever. <laughs> um, but at, at the same time, too, there's like a secondary character that Santiago meets like a uh, an Englishman who's mm -hmm. doing the same sort of thing. He had like this. He had like uh the same sort of dream pursuit where he's trying to uh, he's trying to uncover, discover alchemy, like, you know, turning stuff to gold, turning regular metals to gold. Uh, but it doesn't look like it's going to work out for him. But, you know, he sacrificed everything like he he left. He lost all all his friends and his wealth and everything after this dream and it's you know that i guess the the thing is that he didn't pursue it the right way <laughs> so right. uh there's there's ways to do it and there's ways to not do it but anyway it's a short read 
Um, it's like 150 pages. Maybe it's, it's, it's enjoyable as a story. I just wouldn't look too far into the message because then right. deeper, <laughs> deeper inspection, it's kind of weird. <laughs> well, maybe he's trying to flip everything on it on its ear to be like, you know what? All those classic stories of you were the treasure all along. No, you, <laughs> you need the actual treasure if you're going to sacrifice <laughs> your life. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know, at the end of the day, you got bills to pay taxes. So, yep. but, um, you know, I, I do like stories. I do like metaphorical stories, but I think I prefer the short form. Like, I think, you know, I'm a big fable, a big fable guy. Mm -hmm. I like the, like, uh, the very cynical Ace version, the very cynical Aesop's fables and the extremely cynical, uh, Ambrose Spears fables. Right. Um, so that's, that's more in my vein, but you know, this was, a this was a good read for me. I, I did enjoy it, but I want to read from the first page because there's a really interesting concept that involves reading and just cool. let me know what you think about this. Let me just, let me just read this. The boy's name was Santiago. Dusk was falling as the boy arrived with his herd at an abandoned church. The roof had fallen in long ago and an enormous sycamore had grown on the spot where the sacristy had once stood. He decided to spend the night there. He saw to it that all the sheep entered through the ruined gate and then laid some planks across it to prevent the flock from wandering away during the night. There were no wolves in the region, but once an animal had strayed during the night and the boy had to spend the entire next day searching for it. He swept the floor with his jacket and lay down, using the book he had just finished reading as a pillow. He told himself mm -hmm. that he would have to start reading thicker books. They lasted longer and made more comfortable pillows. Nice. <laughs> what do you think about that? Book as a I pillow. Fully Book support. Fully support. And I've, and I've done it. I've done it. And like I know exactly. On the beach or something? Um, I think that's the only not. place that I've done it. Or camping. I've definitely done it like... I've done it in two ways. I've done it with just the book, probably camping, but I've also done it like book inside the backpack, like arranged appropriately. Okay. Um, and yeah, I, I, I actually know I've actually, I think I've actually done it with like a thick book and been like, Hey, this is like not that bad. Of course, like five minutes later, it's like the like square is in the back of your neck and you're like, yeah. <laughs> I know. But, I, uh, I, I think it's a terrible concept, <laughs> especially this book. This book is is like half an inch thin. Like it's is not it's not a good pillow. And I think some like monster books are like too much. You know, I think can't be a hard cover. Definitely have to be like a soft cover, a thick book. But those kind of more cottony pages. Maybe. What kind of what kind of soft cover books are you having? <laughs> <laughs> I read a soft cover book uh paperback paperback all right i guess that's technically soft yeah but it's kind of funny because um it's another interesting concept like this guy's like a shepherd he's just you know he 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 travels the, the land and what he would do is read a book and then the next person he ran into would be like hey want to trade books so that's like mm -hmm. how you kind of got your uh expanded your reading list and it's like the lending library, but you probably never see, you can never go back. You can only keep trading unless you keep running into the same people. Right. But so definitely interesting book. Uh, I'd like to read more. 
from uh, Coelho's bibliography. Uh, seems like an interesting guy. Maybe there's some more books that are like not in the same vein that I would enjoy more. But I do have a one-star review. This book is very divisive because it's popular. That anything mm -hmm. popular kind of has like really crazy five-star reviews and really crazy one-star reviews. <laughs> uh, and so Jonathan from Goodreads says, I made it through a few pages before throwing it across the room. Then I picked it up, skimmed a few more pages and threw it in the bin. Then I washed my brain, eyes, and fingers with bleach. Belongs, wow. belongs with things like the secret in the deepest depths of book hell. <laughs> Nice. Well, I hope that, uh, you know, within one month's time, Oprah makes this into her book club selection. Oh, this is probably already, already <laughs> been there. I mean, it's from 88. It's been around for a while. It's been, it's been translated into every language ever nice. pretty much. Very right. popular. Uh, any, and there's some other books, uh, Paolo Coelho, just on like the back of the book jacket. Uh, born in Rio de Janeiro in 1947, he's one of the best-selling and most influential authors in the world. The Alchemist, The Pilgrimage, The Valkyries, Brita, Veronica Decides to Die, Eleven Minutes, The Sahir, The Witch of Portobello, The Winter Stands Alone, LF, and Manuscript Found in Accra, among others, have sold 150 million copies worldwide. Those are big numbers. So which one of those do you think is that which from just the titles alone, which one of those do you think is the the true uh, heart of gold story? Hmm. Maybe the pilgrimage. <laughs> the winner well, the, the winner stands chain. alone is very like <laughs> Ayn Randy, like uh, <laughs> definitely. Oh, is it win W I N N E R winner? Yeah, the winner stands alone. So it's like uh, yeah, very it's like Iron Ran. Dog eat dog kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I'll uh, probably be checking out another one of these books at some point. Just got nice. to find it. So thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of SBR, Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every, every uh, once in a while. Spotify, SoundCloud. Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter. All our accounts are at SBR the podcast, no spaces. You can also email us, sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Send us your short stories and comments and whatever. And see you next time. Bye bye.